Hello, everybody, and welcome to Care Talk. My name is Laura Packard, and I'm the Executive Director of Healthcare Voter, but healthcare is also a personal issue for me because I'm a cancer survivor. So I went through the American healthcare system the hard way. We're here to answer your questions about healthcare and health insurance and larger issues in the American healthcare system and today across the globe. So please call or text in your questions and we will answer them in a future episode. Our first question today is from Evelyn, who wants to know, do you have to take Medicare at 65 if you're still working with health insurance coverage? To answer that question, welcome Diane Archer from Just Care USA. Thanks, Laura. And great question, Evelyn. And the answer is sometimes yes, sometimes no. If you're working and you have good health insurance, and you um, are working for a company with 20 or more people, you do not need to take Medicare at 65 when you're first eligible. You can wait until your job ends, and then you have six months to sign up for Medicare after your job ends. Or you can wait until you just drop your insurance before your job ends and sign up for Medicare. But if you're working and you have health insurance and your employer only employs 19 or fewer people, then if you don't sign up for Medicare at 65, you will likely face a late enrollment penalty and you'll have to wait until a general enrollment period, which is between January and March of each year before you can sign up for Medicare. Thank you, Diane. Uh, And our next question is about the new special enrollment period. Who is eligible and how do they sign up for health insurance? Uh, To answer that, welcome Alika from Health Sherpa. Thanks, Laura. Uh, So earlier this year, healthcare.gov and certified partners like Health Sherpa, where I work, um, launched a new special enrollment period uh, for people making less than about 150% of the federal poverty level. In practical terms, Um, That means you make uh, less than around $19,000 in a year if you are a single person um, and about $40,000 for a family. Um, So that means if you expect your income to be below those numbers and you are otherwise eligible for uh, a subsidy on the marketplace, you can actually enroll in ACA health coverage at any time this year. Uh, And if you already have a marketplace plan and your income is less than those thresholds, uh, you can actually also switch plans at any time this year uh, on a month-to-month basis. It's a really exciting opportunity for folks who are in those income ranges to get covered, uh, even if they may have missed the recent open enrollment. Great. And what should you do, Alika, if somebody, if you need insurance and you're not eligible to sign up through the Affordable Care Act right now? So there are two main uh, things you should look into if you're in that situation. The first is whether you might have another kind of qualifying life event. For example, if you've lost a job, that's the most common one, uh, and you currently are losing that health insurance you might have had through that job or health insurance you had through uh, Medicaid or, or another source, um, that would allow you uh, to have a special enrollment period and enroll uh, within 60 days of that life change. Um, there are lots of other life circumstances that also qualify. For example, um, getting married, getting divorced, having a a baby, um, there's, a, there's a long list. So I would say if you're not sure if you fall into one of those buckets, I would always give healthcare.gov a call. Uh, you can call a trusted local broker or a local assister as well who can help you figure out if you might qualify. So that's the first option. The second option is if your income is lower on the lower end, uh, even temporarily, 
uh, you might be eligible for Medicaid, which is free or low cost health insurance uh, through a state federal partnership. Um, so if, uh, again, you know, it's really important to know the marketplace looks at your income for the entire year to see what you qualify for. For Medicaid, they care about your income this month. So if your income right now, um, your monthly income is less than about $1,600 uh, as a single person, or again, around $3,200 for a family of four, you can apply with your state Medicaid office or certainly on healthcare.gov or uh, if your state runs their own exchange through that website as well. But that's also a really uh, great option for coverage for many. Great. And also pay attention to when open enrollment opens up at the end of this year. Our next question is from Melanie. Why is Medicare going up so darn much? $172 a month now for Medicare that denies so many things. And if you don't have a good supplement, they won't pay for the drugs you need for your conditions. They won't pay for a lot of cancer treatments. So now my healthcare is over $300 a month with Medicare, supplemental, Part D, et cetera. Medicare should not be more than 10% of whatever you get in Social Security. Give some people a chance at life and fair healthcare. This is outrageous. Diane, do you have some thoughts on that? I have so many thoughts on that, Laura. But let's start with why Medicare has been such a national treasure. And that's because it's been so cost effective. It's been so good at controlling prices. Doctors' uh, costs and hospital costs are all regulated under Medicare, unlike with corporate health insurance. But what's happened with Medicare is first it added a prescription drug benefit, which was certainly incredibly needed, but it added it without regulating drug prices. And so the drug companies are driving up prices super high and Medicare is paying these high prices and those are being reflected in your premiums. On top of that, at the same time actually that Medicare added the drug benefit, Medicare launched the Medicare Advantage program, which gives people an option of corporate private health insurance. And the issue there is that those insurers have been not so good at controlling costs. In fact, they're costing Medicare tens of billions of dollars more a year than traditional Medicare. And guess who's being charged for that? People with Medicare. So if no matter whether you have Medicare Advantage or traditional Medicare, you're paying a higher Part B premium because uh, the government is overpaying Medicare Advantage plans and they're not able to contain costs. So at the end of the day, probably the biggest drivers of higher Part B premiums, uh, which is the $170 premium you're referring to, um, are both the high prescription drug costs and uh, the fact that we haven't been able to rein in payments to Medicare Advantage plans, which everybody is paying for, people in Medicare, taxpayers. It's also taking a toll on the Medicare trust fund. So right now, there was just recently a report that was issued by the Office of the Inspector General, basically um, explaining that Medicare Advantage plans are taking in great profits, but they're undertreating their members, and that Congress needs to take a hard look, as does the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services at Medicare Advantage plans to protect the integrity of the trust fund. And as a result of that report and a bunch of media coverage, I think Congress is finally now beginning to take a look at this, how long that will take and the effect that will have on Part B premiums in the short term, who knows? The one other piece of news, which we've talked about before, is that the $170 Part B premium reflects the cost of Adjuhelm, the new 
Alzheimer's drug, and now that Medicare said it's not going to cover that drug, uh, it may be that the Part B premium comes down about $11 a month because $11 of your $170 premium, believe it or not, was going to go towards the cost of this one single Alzheimer's drug. Thank you, Diane. Our next question is from Corin, who wants to know, what about health insurance if you're an independent contractor? The healthcare.gov system doesn't recognize my adult child's identity, so they can't get insurance. How do we navigate this? The people that answer the helplines don't seem to have a clear answer. Alika? What a frustrating situation. Uh, so it sounds like this person might be having trouble going through the identity proofing process on healthcare.gov, um, which is usually a couple of Experian questions that... Uh, are meant to help you prove that you are who you say you are, but can sometimes be tricky to answer. Um, I would say generally a healthcare.gov representative should be able to help you with that. If you're having trouble getting the support you need um, when you call healthcare.gov, I would always recommend asking if you can be escalated to a supervisor. Um, those folks often um, you know, have a little more experience with some of these rare circumstances. So that is the first thing I would try. Um, if that doesn't work, you can certainly reach out to a local um, trusted broker, a sister, or give us a call at Health Sherpa, and we can help you try to navigate that process. Um, the other option uh, for you know what this person might be referring to uh, that we were thinking about was um, that healthcare.gov will sometimes ask for documents, again, to prove things you mentioned on your application. Uh, for example, your citizenship status or uh, your income, and I'll say income in particular, can be so challenging for independent contractors to prove just because you might not have access to pay stubs or, um, you know, uh, this kind of documentation that, um, you know, healthcare.gov might be asked. So if you are having trouble getting those documents um, that healthcare.gov is asking you for to prove, you know, again, that uh, all what you said on your application is true, um, one really important thing to know is that um, if you, uh, you healthcare.gov usually gives you the option of writing a letter, uh, kind of describing your situation and, and attesting that your income is what you say it is, uh, and that can often be used in, in lieu of any documents if you're not able to get those. Uh, final point on uh, health insurance, again, if you're uh, self-employed, for example, is that if you... Um, the number for income that you put on your application should be your estimated income minus any business expenses. Not sure if that applies in this case, but always a, a helpful tip for making sure you're getting the most subsidy or eligible. Great. Thank you, Alika. And with that, it's time to introduce our special guest for today's episode. I'd love to welcome Kiefer Buckingham of Open Society Foundations, who will be talking about the global response to the COVID pandemic and what America needs to do going forward. So welcome, Kiefer. Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me. Well, um, I really appreciate you having me on today. I mean, I think this is something that all Americans should be thinking about, um, not just because, honestly, I think it's the right thing to do uh, to care about folks around the globe, uh, but also because it's in our own national interest. I mean, we are now uh, really far into this pandemic. As you all know, we just hit the two-year anniversary and, and approaching um 1 million American deaths from COVID. And, and we know that that may well be, uh, we, we may well have already reached that, that uh, milestone, unfortunately, um, because of underreporting of both cases and deaths. And one of the reasons, as you all well know, that we've prolonged this pandemic is because of variants. Uh, we have uh, the tools that we need to fight 
COVID-19, both in vaccinations as well as now we have treatments, we have therapeutics, oxygen, and we have testing, at least here in the United States. And still it's hard for us to keep it all under control. Um, but what we've seen is variants from COVID-19 as the originating virus itself did not um, and do not generally originate here in the United States. Those variants originate in other countries. Um, uh, specifically, you may have heard in the news reports of variants out of South Africa or elsewhere. Uh, and so that's partly why, um, again, not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because ensuring that people get access to care and to vaccinations um, that we all have at least a choice to to get vaccinated here in the United States. Um, if we are not providing access to those vaccines, we're prolonging the, the pandemic and uh, we're allowing uh, variants to form and spread. And the other thing we're doing is we're undermining those vaccines themselves, right? Um, if we don't uh, get wide enough vaccination from COVID-19, then those variants then uh, are able to evade um, the vaccine. Some of you all may have heard, for example, the difference between the Delta variant and the Omicron variant, right? There was a lot of news around. Uh, the Delta variant was one that was uh, hit folks really hard. It was highly transmissible and also resulted in a significant amount of morbidity and mortality, or we call getting sick and then um, unfortunately getting hospitalized and dying from COVID. And then we had the Omicron variant. Uh, and that in that case, we had maybe a, a slightly milder um, uh, virulence in that it, it didn't, you know, hit individual people as hard, uh, depending on your own uh, medical circumstance, you know, leading up to getting infected. But it was so transmissible, uh, many more times transmissible than Delta. And what that meant was that because, in, especially in communities where we didn't have high vaccination rates, it hit those communities hard. And that just continues to allow um, a virus that, frankly, its job is not necessarily to kill as many as people as possible. It's to infect as many people as possible, right? Um, and to be able to find new hosts and to spread and to grow and mutate to avoid vaccines, right? It's a really smart virus. Um, and with that being the case, it makes it all the more important that we ensure that other people around the world have access to the very same things that we have here in the United States, which is um, uh, wide available and free testing, um, which many communities have, and widely available effective vaccine. And I say effective because unfortunately, not all vaccines are created equal. Here in the United States, most people either have Pfizer or Moderna, or at this point, probably a combination of both. But in a lot of other countries, those um, vaccines that we call mRNA vaccines, which are much more effective in fighting, especially um, the new variants like Omicron, uh, those are not as prevalent. So we have these other types of vaccines, which um, I'm not going to get into the science here because it's complicated, but are just a lot less effective uh, at, um, at being able to combat the Omicron variant. We have these new sub-variants, which you all may have heard of, BA2. Uh, we now have BA4 and BA5 down in South Africa. Uh, and so that means that folks have gotten multiple doses, uh, if, if be at best, of a vaccine that frankly just doesn't do that much to combat uh, a variant. Uh, of COVID-19. So for example, 
Right now, high and upper middle income countries, so countries like the United States, countries in Europe, on average, have received, uh, have, have vaccinated 80% of their populations. So in stark contrast to that, in low income countries, so some of the poorest countries around the world, the average vaccination rate for population is 15% of folks have received at least one dose. So to take a step back, many people here in the United States probably have had at least two doses, if not three, and many people now four doses. And so one dose of a vaccine really isn't doing a whole lot for you right now, especially against Omicron and the subvariants. So we're talking about countries um, in parts of Asia, in parts of Latin America, in parts of Sub-Saharan Africa that actually have a vaccination rate of around five to eight percent. So their communities are really not in a situation where they can combat the virus. And so that just breeds an, a, an ability for um, the variant or the, the coronavirus to continue to mutate. The other reason why we should really care about this is because in a lot of countries where maybe the coronavirus itself didn't hit communities that hard, so maybe uh, we unfortunately don't have great uh, ideas or of, of data because some of the data collection is very difficult. So we don't even know, honestly, how many people tested positive or how many people died from COVID, but we think it's significant. But even if the impacts of the, the virus itself weren't super um, known in a community, what we have seen is the wide ranging, what we call secondary impacts, or I even like to call compounding impacts. So that's like the virus's impact on the community's economy, on um, folks' ability to work. As you know, we had lots of shutdowns all over the United States, and those happened all over the world. So that really hurt folks who are living paycheck to paycheck, in this case, le earning less than a dollar a day, their ability to provide for their families and for those communities to thrive. That is really how the COVID pandemic has impacted them. Another huge impact that we're seeing, which is, of course, compounded by the conflict in Ukraine, is the food security crisis. Again, when folks are sick and communities are shut down, they're not able to be out and sowing the fields and being able to produce um, food for their families and their communities. And that's causing ripple effects around the world. Uh, and so I say all of this to say that we should care about what's happening around the globe, uh, not only because I think we should be in global solidarity with folks who are seeking access to healthcare, um, as I know many of the folks uh, uh, listening today care about, but also because we are not safe until we're all safe. And so as we continue to have this major inequality, and it really is an injustice as it relates to access to vaccines, we are not going to be able to come out of this pandemic. We have done a lot of work here in the U.S., despite a number of challenges to get to a place where folks feel like they can get back and work, uh, where folks are starting to take their masks off, for better or for worse. Uh, and um, that could be short-lived, though, if we don't ensure that folks around the globe have access to the same kind of vaccines and treatment. I'll leave you with one last statistic, and then I want to talk a little bit about some of the other um, uh, issues that we're dealing with here. One last statistic is this, and that's the economic one. We're dealing with inflation here in the United States. We're dealing with high oil prices. As you all know, there's a global economic crisis. And studies have shown that if low-income countries had the same vaccination rate as high-income countries last year, their gross domestic product, so GDP, would have risen by $16.7 billion in 2021. 
So it has ripple effects among the whole globe um, when we're talking about this health inequality issue. Um, just since September, 10 billion doses of COVID vaccines have been distributed globally, but just 1% of those have gone to low-income countries. So we're really sort of talking about providing for the least among us and ensuring that those folks who are marginalized or vulnerable or just happen to live in a different zip code or a different country mm -hmm. have access to the same great resources that we do here in the United States. Um, so I'll pause there. And I think we have lots of <laughs> questions that we can we can talk about. Yes. Uh, my first question is, why? Uh, why is there such inequity? Is it that the vaccines cost too much and yeah. low-income countries can't pay for it? Or what's what's going on here? So the answer is all of the above. There are a lot of compounding issues. I think one of the biggest ones, I'll talk about what the issue is that we're facing right now. To be clear, we were facing different issues two years ago, right? Two years ago, we were talking about the fact that when vaccines were coming online, rich countries, including our own Canada, the UK, um, countries in the EU, started hoarding those vaccines. So as soon as their, you know, <clears throat> Pfizer, Moderna, others started to come out with these vaccines before they even hit the shelves, we were pre-purchasing those first shipments. So we insured us first, America first, if you will, right? We were able to say, uh-uh, us first, we're going to make sure that these wealthy countries get access to care. So that was the first problem, and that set off a wave of inequality. Where we are right now, though, is that many more vaccines are being produced. In fact, we have a lot of the actual inventory that we need but the issue is that last mile. So how do we actually get a vaccine from a tarmac into someone's arm? And that is where that health system inequality. So basic challenges, not just about cold chain, like a lot of these vaccines have to stay cold. So then how do you get from a, an airport or a port all the way to a rural community center? That is a logistical issue. But the fact that these health systems that are being asked to deliver vaccines from point A to point uh, are already struggling. They're already stressed and they have been because of the pandemic um, and the disruption in health services. So I'll, other say, I'll also say that not just is the challenge getting vaccines from what we call ports to arms, uh, which is the, this kind of last mile that we really are struggling to, to do, but we've also seen that the amount of impact in disrupted services because of COVID and because of shutdown has had a disproportionate effect on especially women, girls, and young people. So that's the biggest issue. It's not just the cost itself, because actually countries like the United States have purchased a lot of these vaccines. We, the American taxpayer, have purchased Pfizer vaccines at top dollar to donate globally. But the problem is, is if we don't figure out how to get the resources to get them from ports to arms, that last mile, then they will expire. And that's the other really kind of sad reality that we're in right now is so many folks want COVID to be over, but it's just not. Um, and so we're asking other countries to step up and to help provide resources to get those um, shots in arms. Mm -hmm. And Alika has some questions for you. Yeah, please go, Alika. <laughs> Please, please fire away. <laughs> I'm curious uh, just to hear um, a little more about, you know, beyond vaccines, um, what's the availability of some of these more advanced and newer therapies like like Paxlovid, like um, some of these antibody infusions? Um, are there also, you know, big inequalities in access to those kinds of therapies uh, worldwide? How are uh, how is COVID being treated in, in other countries versus in the U.S.? Absolutely. I mean, I think I would, so I can, I will speak mainly to, to low income countries where the, the biggest inequality is 
there, there is very, very, very little access. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Paxlovid is being produced a mile a minute, or, you know, they're going a mile a minute right now trying to produce as many doses as possible. And of course, access is slowly creeping up here in the United States with some of the communications issues being worked out about who's eligible and who's not. Um, That same confusion is being worked out in Europe. But in terms of access, we're just not there right now um, on the low income um, country side. I'll just say that uh, the United States would like to launch a program called Test to Treat. Um, some of you all may be uh, familiar with this, especially in the HIV space, where we worked on increasing testing and diagnostics so that we could then get people on whether it was oxygen or therapeutics or, in this case, Paxlovid treatment. But there really is no funding left for that right now. Um, and that's why there is a big push to get uh, a supplemental package passed in Congress that would include not only funding for the domestic fight uh, and and the programs that we need here in the United States to continue to provide reimbursement um, for health centers for testing and treatment. But it it includes $5 billion for the global response because it is not just about getting vaccines to folks, but it's about that testing lag that we're having right now. And it's also about getting people treatment who do get sick and there's just not enough resources to go around. That's yeah. I, um, I, I think one other question I have is is really around, um, you know, I think, uh, again, I think we were, we were talking earlier, I have a lot of family overseas. And uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that many other countries were doing a better job of things like contact tracing, of isolating folks who are sick, having, you know, quarantine and, and those kinds of protocols. Um, do those kinds of things uh, matter as much now that we have vaccines? Are they still useful? Um, how does that sort of play out on the global scale? I will say that it's not as big of a factor, especially in countries where um, there's not a lot of options for people to work from home. A lot of folks are, uh, like I said, working in in situations where you know either the infrastructure isn't there to be able to work from home or uh, they're you know, they're just, and, and it was true for many low income communities um, and, and marginalized folks here in the United States is that, you know, it just wasn't an option. And so the isolation thing, especially and testing and, and contact tracing, that's super, super effective in a lot of Asia. So you'll see, you know, you see what's happening in China where a lot of countries are, um, and, and not just China under the, uh, the current regime there, but in other places where folks are pretty okay with giving up a certain amount of their personal freedom to be able to uh, be monitored and then have like these little pockets of uh, shutdowns where there's not a wide shutdown, but they make it much more targeted. Unfortunately, the infrastructure and the technology that's required for a lot of that, which is smartphones and things like that, is not necessarily available in in a lot of places. And so, um, and the the just sheer lack of access to testing and diagnostics makes it really hard to do these sort of contact tracing and um, protocols that we know have been very effective here in the United States and in other places. So it really is more about almost a, a triage situation, right? How do you ensure that we can save the most lives while also uh, at the same time planning, not prolonging this pandemic and also planning for future pandemics. And so it feels like at this moment, it's sort of like, how do we, even with a a small amount of money, how do we ensure that we're doing the most good uh, in communities where 
there's compounding crises right now. So it sounds like one of the big issues is that the American government has run out of money to do uh, COVID work in America and globally. Uh, So what do we do about it? Well, there's a lot of things to do right now. One is that Congress is currently considering uh, a COVID package. Uh, Back last March, the White House submitted a request to Congress for $22.5 billion to address both the domestic and the global needs. To be clear, that $22.5 billion is not enough money. Uh, It is kind of uh, the really light interpretation of how much funding we need to get the job done, but it's something. And it's definitely a lot more than zero. And right now, our global vaccination programs will have to either stop doing their work, their life-saving work, or they're going to have to take money from other other programs, which we know can't happen. So there's a couple of things. First of all, there is a campaign called the Campaign to End COVID Now, which is working to organize folks, especially folks here in the United States who want to talk to their members of Congress or talk to the administration about why this work in the global um, sphere is so important uh, to to our own pandemic recovery here at home. Uh, and the other part of this is the White House is going to be hosting a big global COVID summit on May 12th. And so there's a lot of um, uh, messages that the White House needs to hear from folks about why the U.S. needs to continue serving a leadership role in this space and why Congress needs to provide additional funds now uh, to ensure that we don't... Um, you know, lose more lives to this to this deadly pandemic. Thank you, Kiefer. And uh, I'm involved with the uh, uh, COVID-19 People's Summit, which will be um, all next week. So go to endcovidnow.com to find out more. And so uh, many people, including me, will be talking about uh, COVID's effect on their lives and how we need to do something globally to end this pandemic. So thank you, everybody, for watching Care Talk. Pay attention next week as the White House hold is a part of the global uh, COVID-19 summit. And uh, be sure to keep asking your questions. We will get you answers in future shows. While we go on summer break this month, we will be back in June. Thank you for watching. <laughs>